Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. All right, well, welcome back to Theology Unplugged. We're excited to continue our intriguing Bible passages, problem passages of the Bible. We're for men that love the Bible, that love Scripture, but realize that just to, to be honest and to be candid is that there are places in Scripture many times that make you pause and think to yourself, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Can I really trust this whole book because I'm, I'm confused by this passage? And I think usually what we've talked about in the past as, we, as we've continued this, this series is that many times these are great places to slow down. A lot of times in our, if you're using the YouVersion Bible app, which we love, or, or many things where it's like, oh man, I've got 60 seconds to do Bible study reading, and we want to just fly through. But a lot of times these passages come, come our way that I think make us say, we need to slow down here. This is going to be a long conversation. We can't tweet out the answer. We got to actually talk through it. And I think Genesis chapter 6 is one of these areas. And, and I'll, I'll read this area real quick where, where it's really a, a problem in many ways. Uh, we'll start with verse 1, give a little bit of backdrop. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, which we covered that in a, in a previous passage. This is an interesting chapter that actually has two major problem passages. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, verse 5, this is getting into what we're going to talk about today. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. All right, JJ. JJ, what's the, some people might be like, amen, praise the Lord, destroy those <laughs> pagans. But what's the problem here? What's the issue at stake that we need to talk about? I think I'd rather talk about the Nephilim again. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's, that's a little easier. easier. That's a little no, easier. No, no. no. We, we've been there, been uh, there, done that. I said how little I want to talk about the Nephilim. Now it looks attractive <laughs> compared to solving this one. Yeah. Now, yeah. what's the problem that we well, have to what, solve? What bothers us is that we broad, Christians broadly understand that God is unchanging. Um, and the fancy word for that is he's immutable. And okay. so how can God be immutable, which he is, uh, unchanging in his purposes, in his being, 
in his will, and yet in another sense, say, whatever this means, that he regretted that he'd made man. How do you reconcile those two things? Are they compatible? Are they incompatible? What do you think, Michael, as he summed up the problem? Uh, yeah, I, I do, and it's a, it's a real problem. The problem with our problem passage series so far is that Sam always comes in and says, it's not a problem. <laughs> and he always figures it out real quick, you know? So, so is that I already, a problem? I already said I want to punt on this one. Okay. <laughs> I'm kicking it back so, to you so, guys. Well, what do you think, Sam? Is this, in your I just, mind, is I this just a punted. <laughs> I know. I'm, 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 I intercepted your punt, oh. and I handed it back off to you. Is, oh. is this a problem for you? Or do you see it as a, as a legitimate? It is not a problem for me, okay. but I certainly understand why it is a, a, a major obstacle to many. Because yeah. um, we say, okay, now wait a minute. Obviously, God knew, did he not, unless we are open theists, that humans were going to rebel and fall into uh, in this remarkable degree of corruption. I mean, that back in verse 5, Tim, you read it. Uh, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did that catch him by surprise? Yeah. Well, no, I don't think he did. I think, uh, obviously, if um, we read in 2 Timothy 1 that God had, uh, before the foundation of the world, given us grace in Christ Jesus, well, he knew that there was sin that was going to make that grace necessary. So mm-hmm. God was aware that this was going to happen before it did. So how then... Can we read in verse 6 that he regretted that he had made man and it grieved him? What does that mean? Well, here's what it does to me personally whenever I look at this. And I think I, I think that this is such the this is the motive problem. I don't want a God who is up there surprised about anything. Mm-hmm. That scares me. Yeah. I don't want a God up there that is up there and says, I have this plan. Oh, dang, it didn't work out. I'm going a different direction. Or God who basically slaps himself in the forehead. Oops, yeah. didn't see that one coming. Right. Yeah, yeah, I like to say God is the only being in existence who's never said, oops, it's meant to be a comfort to us. Yeah, never been surprised. But, you know, in, if you put this in terms of my salvation and his love for me and the things that I do and the things that I mess up in, and I look at this and I say, man, the world goes bad, and he's oh, got to change my plan. And so it's like you may think, wow, what is God going to do in the future with us and our salvation? Maybe he says, dang, I'm going to change my plan. I'm grieved that I came and saved people. I'm grieved that I created the church because it got so messed up. So I'm going to wipe it out. That's the, that's that's the kind of a motive point, Michael. Thing. This is very yeah. pastoral, not just theoretical and sort of upper story conversation, but it strikes right at the heart of when people fail as Christians, they're afraid, and I've felt this myself, that that they were a first-round draft pick who's now a bust and that God's wishing he picked somebody else, you yeah, know, yeah, as they look yeah. at their own frailty. So, Here's the question. So, I have this so, for Sam. You're going to ask me a question. I'm going to ask you. you. <laughs> I was going to ask you guys a question. <laughs> Sam, Sam, does God change his mind? Uh, so I'm not trying to be slippery here when I say <laughs> yes. Um, we have, But we have to define our terms. Um, J.J. said earlier, God is immutable. What does that mean? Well, it means that in his divine and holy character, he does not change. God doesn't get better. He doesn't get worse. God doesn't grow. He doesn't develop new attributes along the way. He doesn't lose attributes. He doesn't degenerate. Um, God's uh, life is unchanging. His plans and purposes are unchanging. But in his relationship with his people, there is change in the dynamic In the moment when human beings uh, go in a certain direction or make certain decisions, um, God does, in fact, adapt to and respond in that moment. But 
and here's my conviction, I believe that God always knew that man would take that course or that direction, and he had planned all along to adapt in the way that we read in Scripture that he does. Planned to be grieved? Yes. I believe that God often is pleased to decree his own displeasure. So, In other words, let me define it. (laughs) Repeat that again for our listeners. God is often pleased to decree and ordain his own displeasure. So there are things that God has decreed will occur that he knows when they do occur, it will cause him pain. There's nothing inconsistent with God saying, you know, here's my purpose. Here's my plan. Here's the way I want to accomplish my glory. And when that happens, um, it's going to cause me great grief in the moment. We, we've, in the history of church, we've talked about God not having emotions. There is, what's the fancy word for it? I impassable. Impassable. God is beyond passion. He, he does not experience passion. And that's something that if you look through the history of the church is pretty stable. But we're sitting here saying, no, that's not right. He, well, how, he how does have God, passion. How can God not have passion and have Jesus weeping? Well, why did the whole church say that he didn't have passion? Because they were wrong. Well, <laughs> well again, you have, define, they were wrong. you have to <laughs> define what reason. you mean by, by his impassibility or his passability. There's a sense in which God is impassable, and I'm cribbing off of D.A. Carson here. It, it means that he's not vulnerable from the outside over things over which he has no control. It's not like a human who sees with passion and does something impetuously. Oh, I lost my temper at my wife. I wish I hadn't. But, but any passions that he has are in perfect balance with all of his other attributes. It, it's never that he gets angry and then it causes him to forget that he's loving or forget that he's just. Okay, so so question at the table here. I know all four of us guys reject open theism. Sam, okay. did I do that right? I get really nervous when no, I start not, talking no, about God's good. attributes. No, it's, I, it's a... It's Amen. difficult. Amen, bro. Yeah. JJ's showing some passibility that he is uh, feeling passion <laughs> for Possibly regretting unknown. my statement. Before you talk about open theism, Sam, okay. what's your favorite verse? My, Way my to keep us yeah, focused. I, I, was, I was thinking about I that think, earlier I today, and I, I thought this was that. a good time <laughs> to ask that question. Did you just see a you, you have a favorite squirrel? Verse. Squirrel. You have a favorite verse squirrel. that has to do. This is really unplugged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Squirrel. You, you have a favorite verse that has to do with the passion of God. Yes. Um, well, Zephaniah three seventeen, where God rejoices, He delights in His children so much, so intensely, so authentically that He breaks out singing over them. So passionate. He's Absolutely. Passionate either in grieving or in singing. So we have a passionate God. And okay. Tim, you were going to ask something about open theism. Perfect transition of, into open theism. Okay. So uh, let's say, would you agree, Sam, that open theism maybe hit its climax in the 1990s, perhaps? I think that's when the ETS conference was around that, maybe the early 2000s, perhaps. It was 2001, um, the ETS conference. Okay. Um, so so open theists, just just at a very quick, I didn't give you a chance to answer the question I threw your way, <laughs> Sam, but, but a quick uh, overview real quick would would mainly be saying like, hey, look, I know God is all-knowing. I know he's all-powerful. I know these attributes are true of God. But in how God relates to human beings, because he loves the free will that he has created to be in human beings, I have purposefully chosen not to access my free will or access my all-knowing ability so that I actually don't know what humans are going to do because I love their free will so much that I want them to be free will lovers. And so I'm going to purposefully uh, turn off that part of my all-knowingness into the future according to that. Um, And then that, guys, 
if I'm an open theist, I'm saying, guys, fellas, the reason that you guys are struggling with this is because you don't understand that God has turned that off. And if you guys really understood that God delights to sing over you and he delights as he's watching your free will actions, um, that, that Genesis 6 is not confusing for an open theist because they're saying uh, this is what God has done purposefully because of his love for us. Okay, So Sam, why do you not just agree with open theists? Uh, because of the Bible, um, <laughs> Next. because of Next. dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that very clearly affirm exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Okay, give me a give me a couple. Well, just uh, Isaiah forty through forty eight would be. I would encourage people to sit down and read those chapters, okay. which is the most exhaustive, detailed defense of divine foreknowledge. In fact, God says, "Let me explain to you how you can know that I am God." Here is the one definitive mm-hmm. mark of deity. I know the future exhaustively. I know it from the beginning to the end and the end from the beginning, and your dumb idols don't. Okay. That's, that's the def- Think about Jesus in John 13. I have said these things to you before they happen, so that when they do occur, you will know that I am he. It, it was an evidence of his divinity. So there are just too many texts that, uh, that affirm the exhaustive divine foreknowledge of God. Sure. So basically I would simply ask this. Has it ever occurred to you? that nothing ever occurs to God. Nice, nice. That's tweetable, that, right? That can, is tweetable. Can you say that again for people pulling out their Hashtag phones? Hashtag right theology. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? That's good. Okay, see Michael Patton. The same question. Why are you not an open theist? Well, you know, let, let's back up one more time and oh, talk come about on. open you're, theism. You're no, no, again. no, no, no. I want okay. the audience to he's understand punting. open theism. He's punting. <laughs> he is punting. I want them to understand open theism in a okay. different way as well. Nice. So he's correcting my definition <laughs> of open theism. <laughs> no, no, you were right. But this is just a, a, a bigger bird's eye view okay. or a higher okay. view. Okay. Um, we believe, and this is this is the crazy thing. I mean, we believe in a God that cannot be defined as God unless he has certain attributes. Uh, Anselm talked about God as the necessary being. Um, we've also, in the history of the church, talked about him as the unmoved mover from uh, Aristotle. But we believe in a God who do- is above time. He's transcendent. He does not experience a succession of moments. There's no before and after. He is, he is in, an, in an eternal now. Right now, I mean, there's there's no progress with God. There's no change, as Sam said earlier. But not only that, there's no there's no extension in space. There's no hands. There's no feet. There's no head. There's no um, uh, matter that God is uh, that that He has, and He has He doesn't exist in a space time continuum. He created it all out of nothing. So this is so important because, as Karl Barth said, God is holy, other. He is. He is above and beyond everything. Mm-hmm. So now, if he does not experience time, there's no before and after. We say, well, then he cannot experience change and he cannot grieve. Yes, in the transcendent sense. Whenever, uh, uh, whenever we're talking about God as the unmoved mover, his essence does not change in any sense. But as, as Sam was talking about earlier, he, he relates to us, his relationship uh, to us in time as he makes movements. And so the open theist says this, I don't get that God. Mm. That God that's a, that, that you say is in this eternal now, I, I, you can't relate to him. And not only that, it doesn't look like that God is the God of Genesis chapter 6. 
And so they're say, they say often, you're being too philosophical about God. You're taking Greek understanding of God. But in the Bible, God is dynamic. He's changing. He's, he's, he's always moving and uh, becoming in some sense. Yeah. Well, let's not forget there's a pastoral element. <clears throat> I can't attribute this to every open theist, but at least one prominent open theist, Greg Boyd, in his, in his widely read book, God of the Possible, uh, he's pastor and theologian, uh, Greg tips his hand in the introduction to his book where he tells a, a story or gives a vignette that's meant to be a moving apologetic for why open theism is such a great thing to embrace, that the future mm-hmm. is open in some sense for God. Uh, counseling a woman in great grief in, in, in a pastor's office who's asking, if God knew this man was going to leave me like this, why would he let me marry him? And then the open theist gets to say, good news, God didn't know and he's grieving with you. And, and so it's sort of open theism is supposed to somehow now get God off the hook for human suffering well, well, and let, provide let, some listen comfort. Listen to this, because that, that is so good, but let's, let's create those two categories. You've got traditional theism that says God exists in an eternal now in his essence, and he relates to us and even becomes incarnate in a imminent sense. So you've got transcendence, eternal now. These are big terms. Uh, and imminence, I'm relating, I'm dynamic, I'm changing. Open theists only have one. They have the dynamic. They do not have the eternal now. And so you have the traditional Christianity versus open theism that is uh, is at stake here. So let, maybe real quick definition of open theism for people who don't know. It's the view that the future is truly open in the sense that nothing is settled, nothing is firm, nothing is irreversible, that the future is open because the free will decisions of human beings have not yet been made, and since they have not yet been made, God can't know what is a nothing, in essence. Now, here's the question. Let's come back to this passage. I don't want us to get too far afield. Let me ask the question that is shouting at us from this text. Can God legitimately and genuinely be grieved by or feel sorrow for an event that he foreknew would occur and even ordained would come to pass? Let me ask that again. That's the issue here. Because the text says God regretted it. That literally means he felt pain. He felt sorrow that he had made man. So he, he said, I, I, I've made man, but now I'm in the moment of witnessing the wickedness that has spread so pervasively, I'm feeling pain. And he says, and it grieved him in his heart. So this is the question. Can that, that sorrow, that grief, that pain in God's heart be real? Not feigned, not fake, not, not, you know, not some sort of a figurative expression. Can it be real? If, in fact, God knew with infallible certainty that this series of events would come to pass and actually ordained and decreed that it would come to pass. And I believe the answer to that is yes. Well, let me give you an illustration. The open theist says no. I believe the answer is yes. Well, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Christ was on the earth and he knew uh, at least the the main parts of his mission and the the central part of his mission that he's going to the cross and he's going to die. So knowing this his entire life... And telling the apostles over and over again, they don't get it, they don't understand ever. But here's Christ who knew and knew this was foreordained, had brought it about within the plan uh, in eternity of the Holy Trinity, but yet he goes into the garden and what does he do? He sweats. He, he, he gets stressed. He is in, in grieving over what is about to take place between him and the Father. 
Why did he do that? He already knew. Well, add to that, add to that the cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, how? And yet he knew exactly why God, he knew it from eternity past. Uh, So I think the answer is very clearly, yes, God can know with infallible certainty something's going to occur. He can even decree that it come to pass. And yet when it actually in time, space, historicity transpires, he can be grieved by it. He says, it's, you, here we're trying to enter into the mind of God as God is thinking from eternity past. All right, mm-hmm. um, the humanity is going to fall. They're going to become so wicked and pervasive in the earth that I am going to um, judge the earth, in essence, start over again with the, with the great flood. And when that happens, I'm going to feel real pain, not because I'm regretting my decision in the sense that oh, when it happens, I, I, I wish that I could do it all over again. I wish I could go back to plan B. Mm-hmm. No, but God is always grieved by sin. God is yeah. always pained and sorrowful at rebellion in the hearts of his creatures. Uh, but that doesn't mean he didn't know that they were going to actually commit those kinds of transgressions that would evoke sorrow in his heart. Those I don't think those things are inconsistent. I, I can, um, I, I can, when I was younger, my children younger, I could have said to my, my daughter, Knowing her tendencies, knowing her past habits, knowing her her uh, nature, honey, if you uh, continue to pull that that vase because it's now expensive, a vase is cheap, right? That <laughs> vase off of the bookshelf and 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 you end up breaking it, I'm going to spank you. And sure enough, two hours later, I hear a crash, and. Um, She's broken it, and I spank her, and I am grieving while I'm having to discipline my child. But I knew that I was going to have to discipline my child because I was fairly certain, even though I'm not God, that she was going to disobey me. That doesn't that doesn't make my grief in the moment of the discipline disingenuine. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's fake any more than God's grief at this particular point in history is somehow insincere. I think it's yeah. very sincere. Yeah, yeah I think maybe a, a more popular level way to say this, and Sam, tell me if this works, is there's a sense in which God foreknew I'll tell you if it the works. grief yeah. that he would yeah. have. You know, you think I'll, I'll of 1 Samuel 15.35, it says that God regretted that he'd made Saul king. Now, when he made Saul king, did he know that he was going to regret that he made him king? Yes. 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 But so then what does it mean that he regretted? Because it shows that we think of a genuine emotion as something that's spontaneous, that if God knew ahead of time that he was going to feel it, that it makes it less real. You know, but something being not spontaneous doesn't mean it's not genuine for God. When God has emotions, he chooses to have them. He chooses to love. He chooses to, to grieve. Yeah. So he knows ahead of time he's going to grieve. He chooses to do so. He's not seized with it and swept along by it in the sense that he's helpless because he's being buffeted he's by it. He's pleased to ordain events that will cause him displeasure. Yeah, yeah. To, to Moses, he says, get out of my way that I might destroy them <laughs> as, <laughs> as he's, as he's uh, regretting in the same sense what he's done with Israel. Or changing his mind, Moses says to him, "No, no, no! Don't do this. I, you know, you're gonna if you destroy Israel, you're gonna look really dumb to the Egyptians and everybody yeah. else." And so he uh, talks God out of it. Whenever Jonah is going to Nineveh, mm-hmm. and he says, "Go to Nineveh and tell them I'm gonna destroy them," but he changes his mind. Why? Because the dynamics of humanity, in the dynamics of humanity in relationships, God is truly taken part. And so whenever we look at him, even though he exists in this eternal now, that, that he does not in his essence have this before and after, we have a true dynamic relationship with him to where he is feeling, he has emotions 
emotions with us. He's the one who created them. I mean, if he doesn't have them, where did they come from with us? And so you, you have this dynamic relationship that we have, but here's, here's the problem. We're sinful. And so whenever God is perfect and him in this dynamic relationship with us, us sinful people are going to cause him uh, grief many times. Okay, so here's a question then for, for the fellas, okay? If this is true, then what? how do I live today? How do I live today and every action and thought that I have, how do I, how do I when I'm going to bed at night tonight, how do I not think to myself, I bet you God grieved all day today as he watched me live my pathetic little life as a Christian? Long silence. I'll take it. Thank, I'm going to take thank, it. I'm thank you for the it. comfort. You're just allowing me to <laughs> first, feel. First Peter, first yeah. Peter 2.24. Uh, okay. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. So there's a sense in which God poured out his wrath on his son. And when he looks at us now, he sees Jesus. And, okay. and so he accepts us, not as we are, but he accepts us, as Pallison says, David Pallison, contra-conditionally on the basis of who Jesus is. Mm. And I would appeal to Hebrews ten seventeen and that glorious statement as part of the new covenant where God says, and I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. But, God but promises not to remember. Uh, but doesn't he also, in this relationship, we know that we, he sees us as Christ imperfect. He still, whenever we sin, he, it, it does hurt him. It, it, there is sure, a grief. Sure. Yeah, he would not be holy. He would not be righteous if he were not adversely impacted by the reality of sin and rebellion. Tim, to answer your question is that we're perfect, like J.J. said, in Christ. But at the same time, we have this relationship where we come before God, and when we sin, it grieves him. But we have forgiveness in Christ for those sins, and we, we cleanse our feet and our walk with him so that it may be pure. So we, we do experience both in, uh, at once a total forgiveness of sins, yet a dynamic relationship where we are to come before him and confess our sins. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. If it's blessed you, they'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop, and their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Please consider this your official invitation. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and discuss today's program or take a tour of the theologically rich surroundings. You might also enjoy one of their signature drinks like a Luther latte or a Nicene mocha. In fact, if it's your first time in the Credo House and you mention that you heard their program on Bot Radio Network, you can have the drink of your choice for free. For more information or to support this ministry, visit credohouse.org.